Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Father, we do bless the name of of the Lord, of Jesus Christ, our Savior, this morning. We praise you, Father, first of all, simply for who you are, for the great God that you are, for the great Savior. Lord, as the kids learned this week, creator, provider, protector, and king. Father, the list goes on and on and on, simply not even of what you've done, but of who you are that's worthy of praise and honor and worship and adoration. And Father, first and foremost, that's why we're here this morning to declare, to be reminded, to tell those who don't yet know what a great and mighty and awesome God you are. Father, we're also here this morning to thank you and to praise you for what you've done. Lord, we look back as as what we've heard already this morning. We've already been presented with so much to give you thanks for. Father, 11 lives claimed for the kingdom. Father, 11 more that that something else happened there that, that caused them to just take a step toward maturity and devotion to Christ. And Father, who knows what else is going to come from that, but, but we give you thanks for what you've done, but also, Lord, in advance for what you are going to do. And we thank you for what you're doing in our church and in our lives, Father, and, and what you intend to do even in the next little while here as we open your word. And so, Father, my prayer now as we shift from singing your praise, Father, to looking at your word is, is that, as always, you would be our teacher. Father, no preacher has anything in and of his own right to say that's worth listening to, that's worth hearing or remembering. Father, but your word is life and truth, and it lasts forever. And, Father, you tell us that when we get into your word and you send your spirit, Father, transformation happens. V- VBS doesn't change lives. Lord, churches and sermons don't change lives. The gospel changes lives. Jesus Christ changes lives. And Father, as we get into your word this morning, ultimately and supremely, we are looking for him. So Father, as always, we'd ask right now that as we study your word together, you'd guide us in truth, for your word is truth. That you send your spirit, Father, to guard us from error. We don't want to leave with more questions than when we came. Father, we ask by the power of your spirit, you deliver our hearts from anything that might get in the way so that for the next little while we might see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we study your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we study your word. And may you be glorified. May we leave with even more reasons to bless the holy name of God and of Christ the Son in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're doing that, let's dismiss for Children's Church. You can send the boys and girls. They've had a full morning already, but we'll send our five-year-olds for our second graders out uh, to go spend some time together in the Word. And I'm going to ask you, if you have a Bible, to take it out. I hope that you do. If not, you can grab one from the back. Uh, Take it out. And and the first thing you need to do if you have a Bible in your hands this morning is you just need to start breaking that binding in because uh, more so than other Sundays, we are going to be all over our copies of the Scriptures this morning. So get that binding good and loose. Get ready to turn pages because we have several different places we're headed in the Scripture this morning. I'm excited about all of them. I I trust that by the time we're done, you will be too. But specifically where I want you to head is Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, this morning, as we continue this series we've been in uh, for the summer months, the weeks and and months of the summer so far, and we're continuing, which is titled, once again, you're going to say it with me on the count of three, one, two, three, it's, that's right, it's not, it's not about the building, we are in pursuit of a building, but it's not about the building, and we're going to continue talking about that this morning, and and as you continue to make your way to Genesis chapter 4, let me just throw one more quick thing in, and then we need to get into the scripture which is this, that in sort of in conjunction with what we're doing here, 
Uh, what you've already heard from the expansion committee this morning, this pursuit we have of more ministry space, we have a little gift for you. We've handed out a lot of books lately. We're handing out one more. Uh, if you are uh, a regular attender of Maranatha Bible Church is your church home. In your mailbox today is a, a copy of a little book called Plastic Donuts. And I know you're going to scratch your head and say, Plastic Donuts, what in the world is that? But this is a little book that we've come across recently. Greg, our church administrator, found it and has brought it to our attention. It's a book, its subtitle is Giving That Delights the Heart of the Father. And as I shared with you last week, and I'm going to continue to share with you today, we are talking now in this pursuit of, of what God has going on. We're talking about giving and what it means to be a generous giver. We believe this book, I've read it a couple times through now, is a fantastic resource, and it really sort of dovetails perfectly with what we're going to look at in the scriptures this morning. So if you have a mailbox, get it on the way out, get your book, take it home and read it. If you don't and would like a copy, take out the sign and pad, say, I'd like a copy of plastic donuts. We will not deliver it with real donuts, but we'll give you a copy of plastic ones. And, uh, and we want you to get it in your hands and begin reading it just as another way to, to let God work in our hearts in this process. So I wanted to make mention of that. Now I want to stop making mention of that and get into God's word. And to do that this morning, as I said, Genesis chapter 4 is where we want to be, and I'm going to read the story found here in just a moment. But, but first, for starters, I want to ask you a couple of questions. These are sort of did-you-know kind of trivia-type questions, and they are as follows. Question number one, did you know that in the Bible there are more, more than 2,000 verses of Scripture that deal with the subject of, of money, of wealth, of possessions and of giving. More than 2,000 verses of Scripture deal with wealth and earthly treasure. Furthermore, did you know, secondly, that in Jesus Christ's earthly life and ministry, at least the portion of it recorded for us in the gospel accounts, that Jesus Christ spent more time talking about money, about wealth and possessions, than he ever spent talking about heaven or hell or prayer or faith combined? Did you know that? Now, those are just two little factoids, two little bits of information to begin this morning, but what they tell me in conjunction with a whole lot of others that we could turn to as well is that apparently what that means is that money and everything linked to it is a rather big deal to God. 2,000 verses of Scripture, a massive amount of Jesus' earthly ministry is devoted to this single subject, and it's important that we know that as we keep moving forward in this series of studies in God's Word. Because as we continue to pursue God's answer to our request, the request we've laid before Him for that plaza building that sits just across the street, last week, after a few weeks of preparation, we began considering what God might have in mind for each one of us as individuals and families, financially speaking, as our partnership in this venture, specifically as we move toward a designated Sunday in September when we're going to ask those of you who call this church home and whom, in, whom's, in whose hearts God has moved to make a commitment of three years' worth of, of giving to some degree toward this project. And as we dig deeper into what the Bible says on this subject, I want to reaffirm something. I want to say again what I said to you last week, that at no time in this study, in this series, and in this process, are we ever going to stand up here and tell you how much to give? We're just not going to do it. The Bible doesn't give us that authority, so we're not going to take that liberty because the Bible never says, here's specifically, based on your situation, how much you should give to a designated process. The Bible doesn't do it, so we won't either. But here's what the Bible does say and says often. It does not tell us how much to give toward the Lord or any other thing in that sense, but it does tell us how we should go about our giving. 
that as those who give to God and what he's doing, the Bible tells us much about how we should go about it, whether it's toward a building or anything else. And so that is what we are talking about here together. Now, last week we began in 1 Chronicles 29. You remember the story of King David at the end of his life when he made great, incredibly generous provision for his son, the next king, Solomon, as he prepared to build the great temple of God in the heart of Jerusalem. And through that story, what we learned in 1 Chronicles 29 is that for the believer in Jesus Christ, generous giving is a matter of several things. First of all, it should be a priority. Second, it should be viewed as a privilege. Third, we should, we should let it become a practice that generosity should be the way of life or one of the ways of life of a follower of Christ. And, and that finally, we learned that generous giving ought to be proactive, that I should be giving to what God is doing as he prompts my heart, whether there's any direct benefit to it or payback, you might say, to me personally or not. And, and ultimately, we concluded with the big idea. This is last week's big idea, not this week's. Don't get excited yet. But last week's big idea which is that ultimately generous giving is about getting connected with what God's doing. That's what it's all about. It's getting connected with what God's doing and plugging into it in a tangible way. That was last week, 1 Chronicles 29. Well, this morning we're going back in our Bibles in the Old Testament even further, as I said, to Genesis chapter 4, which, by the way, and you may be aware of this already, is the very first story Scripture tells us after the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve, they're created, uh, they... they uh, God begins to, to assign them uh, what he wants them to do. Then, of course, in chapter 3, they sin. They rebel against God. God deals with that. He punishes that. And then this, Genesis 4, is the story that comes next. It is the story, perhaps a familiar story to many of you, of Cain and Abel. The story of Cain and Abel. You say, what in the world, if we're talking about generous giving, are we doing in the story of Cain and Abel? Well, the reason we're there, and perhaps, and certainly I, until recently, had never thought of it this way before, of, of whatever else the story of Cain and Abel may teach us, ultimately, I believe that the familiar, infamous story of Cain and Abel is a story about giving. It's a story about giving. Grab your Bible and follow along as I read. I'll see if I can explain what I mean. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 8, this is what the Word of God says. It says, now the man had relations with his wife. The man would be, of course, Adam had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, verse 2, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground, both of which were legitimate professions, uh, things that could be used to, to honor and serve the Lord. Verse 3, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought an offering of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. Now, before we go any further, I want to define a term. There's two terms we need to define in this story, the first of which is the term offering. It says, Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. It says, Abel brought an offering to the Lord from the, from the firstlings of his flock, a lamb, we would presume, or something along that line. What you need to know about that term, in the original Hebrew, the word offering means gift. It specifically means a gift or a present. Not necessarily a sacrifice, like a blood sacrifice or an animal sacrifice. It could include that, but it's much broader than that. A gift of any kind. It could be fruit, it could be grain, it could be animals, it could be money or possessions. The word offering here simply means a gift that is offered to the Lord. Let's keep that in mind and let's continue. The middle of verse 4. It says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, the Lord had 
no regard. Now let's stop right there and define a second term, the term had regard. What does it mean that God had regard? If you're reading from the NIV, your Bible probably says looked with favor. That's probably a more helpful description. Because when it says that God had regard for Abel's offering and no regard for Cain's, the word literally, the Hebrew term means to gaze at with satisfaction. It means to see something and find it acceptable. And by acceptable, we mean pleasing. Something that God was glad to be given or to receive. And it said God gazed with satisfaction and accept Abel's offering, but he gazed with dissatisfaction and had no regard, did not accept Cain's offering, the upshot of which, as most of us know well, is this, that Cain became, verse 5, very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, and you must master it. So Cain told Abel, his brother, all of these things. And it came about that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Now, well, this story obviously has much, much to teach us about anger, about rivalry, about the, the wicked power of, of sin in our heart that goes unaddressed or undealt with. And all of those lessons are very important. The key for us here this morning, and really the key to the whole ugly episode and everything about it, is this, that it all revolves around offerings. Everything that happened in this story revolves around and is connected to Cain and Abel's offerings. And without taking any liberties with the text whatsoever, without reading anything into the text whatsoever, very quickly, just uh, sort of to, to get us into what we really want to talk about this morning, I think there are some conclusions we can draw. I'm going to give you these fast, and then we'll get into the heart of what we're after. There are some conclusions we can draw simply by reading those eight verses. Number one, God had a definite opinion about these offerings. God had a definite opinion about each man's offering. He had regard favorably received one. He had no regard and rejected the other. What does that mean? That means, secondly, we can conclude, again, without reading anything into the text, not all gifts are equal. Not all gifts to the Lord are equal. Furthermore, what that means, thirdly, is that not every offering is therefore acceptable. Not every offering, presumably given to God, is acceptable. And by acceptable, we mean pleasing to him. Are you sure about that? Yeah, you remember we were in Acts chapter 5 not long ago. Ananias and Sapphira, remember that story? They sell some property, they bring the proceeds or a portion of them to the apostles, lay it at their feet, and God says, no dice, not interested. An unacceptable offering. Not all offerings are acceptable. But here's the principle I ultimately want us to see, and it's going to shape everything else I want to share with you from God's word this morning, which is this, and it's critical. That the acceptability of the offering, the acceptability of the offering that is given or was given in this story was inseparably linked to the heart of the giver. The acceptability or unacceptability of the offering was directly linked to the giver. Look again at verses 4 and 5. This is so important and so key for us to understand. It says, the Lord had regard, look, for Abel and for his offering. Verse 5, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. The heart or the life of the giver is inseparably linked and connected to the nature of the gift or the acceptability of the gift that is given. Now, there's one really, with all that said, there's one really frustrating thing about this story. Supremely frustrating if you ask me. 
We aren't told why. The story does not tell us why God accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's. There's simply not a clue. Now, through the years of church history, a lot of ink has been spilled speculating on the question about why possibly Cain's offering was rejected, why possibly Abel's offering was accepted, but the bottom line is it's it's, it's exactly that, speculation. We don't know. This story does not tell us why one was accepted and the other was not. However, the interesting thing is that there are plenty of other passages elsewhere in the Bible that do that talk about what makes for an acceptable gift, what makes for an offering of any kind that is pleasing to God. And so what we're going to do with the rest of our time here this morning is go hunting for those things. Specifically, what I want to try to deliver to you before we're done are five ingredients of an acceptable gift. As we contemplate giving in general, that part of our relationship and walk with the Lord, but specifically whatever giving we might be prompted to do when it comes to this building that we are in pursuit of for further ministry space, I believe the scripture gives us at least five ingredients of what makes a gift acceptable as we prayerfully consider our part in pursuing that building. Now, here's the thing. we got to move fast. I'm going to take you to five passages of Scripture. I hope your Bible's open. I hope your fingers are nimble and ready to go. We're going to move quickly through the Scriptures. And in large part, I'm going to let the Bible speak for itself. I'm going to comment on each of these passages, but not at length, because I think the Scripture is sufficient for itself in this. So here we go. Number one. The first ingredient, or one of the five key ingredients that lead to an acceptable gift, is number one, it corresponds to my ability is that the giving I do corresponds to my ability. If you have your Bible open, you can leave Genesis behind and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I'm going to read the first four verses. The Apostle Paul's writing here. He's writing to the church in Corinth, the church that he has first of all chastised, and now he is praising because they've gotten their act together in so many different ways. Then he says this to them in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 4. He says, Now, brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. He's writing to Corinth, that's one city, but he's talking about the Macedonian church, which is in another city far away. And this is what Paul wants them to know about the Macedonians. He says that in great ordeal of affliction, in a tough time, their abundance of joy... And their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave their own accord, begging us, Paul and the others, with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Now, fair warning, short warning, but fair warning, I'm about to say something that could be potentially highly controversial. I'm not really kidding when I say that. But what I take from this passage and others as well is that when it comes to giving, the amount matters. When it comes to our giving to the Lord and his work, the amount we give matters. And the reason I say that's controversial is because many of us, like myself, who've grown up in the church and around believers, we've been perhaps told, maybe we've been told often, maybe we've been told emphatically that the amount doesn't matter. That it's not how much you give, it's the what that counts. The heart that counts is if somehow these two things are mutually exclusive. That I either give from the heart, or I, or, and, and that's what matters, or, or it's the amount that matters, and, and, and sort of never the twain shall meet, but that simply isn't true. It's simply not true that it's all about the heart and not about the amount. Because while the heart does matter, and we're going to spend the rest of the sermon talking about our hearts, 
The heart does matter, no question about it. The amount we give does as well. Not compared, listen, here's the key. Not compared to what others are doing and what others are giving, but compared to, relative to, as Paul says in these verses, to my own ability, to what God has entrusted to me. And the church at Macedonia is a perfect example. Because in verse 2, we learn something. Look at your Bible. Extremely important about them. They were poor. Paul says, out of their deep, extreme poverty. This was a poor church of believers. The idea would be that perhaps every week they scraped together just enough to get through another week to meet their needs and take care of the ministry, but that was all that they were able to do. But what do we also learn in verses 2 and 3 and 4? That at the same time, while they were an impoverished church, they were, at the sa- they were also a, a joyful church. They were a joyful gathering of believers, and that furthermore, as a result, the end of verse 2, they gave liberally to meet others' needs. In great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify, according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, that is, they did so freely. Now, what that means is this, that perhaps what the Macedonian believers were able to give was small potatoes, compared to maybe the Ephesian church or the Roman church or the church at Philippi. Possibly when you added it up and set it next to other churches, it didn't look like a whole lot, but that's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. The point is, they gave generously from what they had and did not consider it to be a hardship. They said, this is what God's entrusted to us, and we consider it a privilege to take from what God has given and plug it into where he is working or where there's a need someplace else. So what does that mean? It means that as I contemplate my giving to the Lord, buildings aside, just what I do is an expression of my devotion to Him. The amount matters. And I give according to my ability to what God has entrusted to me. That's number one. It corresponds to my ability. Second ingredient then of of an acceptable gift to the Lord is that it is then offered, offered to God, secondly, with an open hand. I give according to my ability, and I offer it with an open hand. If you have your Bible open, I want you to go back now to the Old Testament, to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi is the final book of the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with it, chapter 3 is right, but right near the end, chapter 4 concludes the Old Testament. But go to Malachi chapter 3. In a nutshell, the summary of the situation here is this. That the Old Testament people of God, the Israelites, at this point in time when the prophet Malachi wrote, were giving to God less than they could and less than they should. And in some cases, we could probably assume that some of them were not giving to God at all, even though he had in the Old Testament instructed them clearly to do so. In other words, they were not giving according to their ability. They were not doing what God had enabled them to do. And while the reasons aren't recorded, one safe guess would probably be the same reason that I don't always give what I should. I have a selfish heart. I like my money and I like my stuff and I don't like the idea of giving it away. I like to use it for me. So there's probably, that's certainly probably part of the issue. But another might be, and I think this is something that many of us as believers could probably identify with, is the fear that if I give something to God, there might not be enough left over for me. How will I take care of my needs? How will I take care of my wants if I give generously to the Lord? And so here's what God did. He issued them a challenge. These are powerful verses. I want you to follow along in your Bible. God begins speaking to the nation of Israel, and he says this. He asks them a question, verse 8, Malachi 3, 8. 
Will a man rob God? Is it possible for a human being to rob from the Lord? God answers his own question. He says, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you, Lord? They're saying back to him. And God says, in tithes and offerings. And he says this, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And then God issues them this challenge. Watch this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house that the temple needs, the ministry will be taken care of, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Now there is a fixed biblical principle at issue here. It's a principle that begins at the very beginning of the Old Testament, and it runs all the way through the end of the New Testament, and that principle is this, you don't test God. Jesus said it himself. He said it to Satan. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't do it. Uh, don't, don't dare God. Don't bargain with God. Don't arbitrarily put God in positions where he's got to come through to give you something you want. Don't put God to the test. Clear, fixed, biblical principle. With one notable exception. Malachi chapter 3. And God's rules are God's rules, and God's allowed to make exceptions to them where he wants to. God has made an exception to the rule, don't put God to the test. And it just so happens that he chose to do it in this realm, this matter of what? Of giving, of our money, of how we handle our wealth and our, possess our possessions. This is the one place in Scripture where God gives his people permission to test him. And he does it, as I said already a moment ago, boldly. Here's essentially what God says in verse 10. He says, are you, he takes his great big sovereign providential holy finger and he sort of points it in the face of his people. And he says, are you kidding me? Are you trying to tell me that you don't think I can take care of you? Are you suggesting to me that I am not able or capable or faithful? Or are you trying to tell me that I'm going to drop the ball? Are you trying to say to me that you doubt my ability to provide, that if you do what I've asked and even commanded in the Old Testament you to do, give to me your tithes and offerings. You're afraid there won't be enough left over for you to live on, to take care of your, your food and your clothing and your shelter and all that stuff. Put me to the test. Make me prove it. Go ahead. Make my day and see if I won't bless you, and if I won't be everything to you I've promised to be, if I will not be faithful. Test. To test means to examine, to try, and to make someone prove their ability. God said, make me prove it. Do what I've told you to do and see if I am not faithful. In other words, what God is saying is that like everything else about a maturing Christian life, giving is a matter of faith. I give to him with an open hand, trusting he will take care of me. Ingredient number one, according to my ability. Ingredient number two, it's offered with an open hand. Ingredient number three, and this is critical as well, this all sort of fits together, because at, at one and the same time, a third ingredient of, a, of an acceptable gift is that as I give it with an open hand, according to my ability, that my giving is marked with the spirit of joy. That it's marked, my heart is, with the spirit of joy. For this, I want you to go to Acts chapter 4. 
And it's great that we've been in the book of Acts, specifically, as I said, Acts chapter 4 is what we're looking at this morning. Lately, prior to this series, you know if this is your church a family, your church home, we've been studying through the book of Acts. And I think it's by God's design that we have been, because the book of Acts gives us numerous wonderful examples of the people of God in action. It's not just teaching and, and, and theory, as it were, but it's action and response. God's people doing what they're supposed to do. And particularly, even already in our study of the book of Acts, we're through about chapter 8 or 9 is where we left off. We've seen multiple instances of of occasions where God's people have taken care of one another, where it's been a matter of giving and material need and provision. Particularly, as as here in Acts chapter 4, some of you heard these verses. Acts 4, verses 32 through 35, which say this. It says, the congregation, this would be the Jerusalem church, the original, rapidly growing Jerusalem church. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property. In other words, they took care of one another's needs. And with great power, great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. This is an amazing statement, verse 34, for there was not a needy person among them. All who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each to, as anyone had a need. Now, let me just draw out one big point from those four verses. One thing for us to sort of chew on in this whole process, this study of ingredients of acceptable gifts, it's this. But the main reason the apostles were so effective in their preaching, it said in what in verse 33, that with great power they were proclaiming the gospel. We know from our study of Acts the church was growing rapidly. One of the prime, here's what I'm saying, one of the primary reasons that was true, that, that what the apostles were saying to the city of Jerusalem, to the unbelievers in that city was so effective was because of what the rest of the church was doing along with them. That that they're giving, that they're caring for one another's needs, that they're providing. When they saw someone in need, I have much, I'll share with someone who has little. The fact that this was going on all the time, you know what that did? That authenticated their claim that the gospel changes lives. Anybody can stand up, open a Bible, and say the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms lives. It changes them. It can make you a new creation, give you a new heart and soul. But what do people who don't believe yet really want to know? Does it work? Does it show up in real life? What are we being told here? It did. That the, the way they authenticated, or one of the ways the, the claim of the gospel to change lives was authenticated, was that the people of God were joyfully meeting one another's needs. It is about the heart. It's about the heart, too. Compare that to Cain and Abel. Go back to that story for a moment. Where again, we don't know why Cain's offering was rejected. We aren't told but we do know how Cain responded to God's rejection of it, don't we? He got angry. He got bitter. He let it fester in his heart, and it manifested itself in murder. It tells me something was wrong with his heart to begin with. I think that's a safe assumption. It, it uncovered what perhaps was really there. Maybe that's simply because, if we can assume anything, he saw offerings and, and giving as a duty were able, like King David, saw it as a delight that the heart was, was different. The point is simply this, that acceptable giving, if we want God to receive our giving in the spirit it's intended, it needs to be offered with a spirit of joy. Not as a have to, but a get to. 
Not as a must, but a want to. Why? Because he's worthy of our very, very best. And that leads to the fourth ingredient of an acceptable gift. And I know we're moving fast. I hope that you will take these things and go home and contemplate them further, dig into some of these stories, but this is a key as well. And we need to see it in the context of what we've looked at already this morning, which is that the fourth ingredient, or a fourth ingredient, of an acceptable gift is done according to my ability with an open hand in a spirit of joy as an act of worship. That we view giving, what, however little or much we do, whatever it may be, we view it as an act of worship. And you know, apart from the verses we're about to read, go to Mark chapter 12 is where I want you to head. Mark chapter 12. Apart from the four verses that we're about to look at here in Mark 12, that's a principle I'm convinced of, and I will never be unconvinced of it, that giving is, in fact, supremely an act of worship. And and the reason I'm convinced of it, and I will never be unconvinced of it, and I've studied the issue of giving in the Scripture a lot, and, and money and possessions and all these other things, we've taught it here at Maranatha before, is because I have yet to come across a single verse of those 2,000 plus verses of scripture that do with, deal with money and wealth and finances and giving. I have yet to come across one yet where giving is not directly tied to worship of some sort. I just can't find it. Now, if you find one, email me and we'll talk. But I bet within a ring or two of, of separation, a degree or two of separation, we'll find that, yeah, it was an act of worship after all. Giving is an act of worship. And that's how we should see it and go about doing it. And this passage perhaps illustrates it as well as any. Mark 12, starting in verse 41. Some of you are going to recognize this story very quickly. It says, And he, that is Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury. He's in the temple. And he's got the, the place where people do their giving in view. And he began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two copper coins, which amount to a single cent. And calling his disciples to him, he, Jesus, said to them, the disciples, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all that she owned, all that she had to live on. Now, The first, the biggest, to me the newest, I never thought of it this way before until last week. The first, biggest, newest, and perhaps really the only thing we need to see in the four verses we just read, or the thing that I want you to sort of chew on with me, all right, I'm already having fun chewing on this one, let's have the fun together, is the fact that according to verse 41, Jesus was watching. Jesus was watching people give. It tells us he set himself in a conspicuous enough place in the temple where he could see people taking their gifts up to the box or the bowl or whatever, wherever it was they deposited what they were bringing to the Lord. Jesus was sitting there watching, and it says he was paying close attention. To what? To their giving? To how much they were giving? Does it not say that? He saw she put in two cents, and he saw that there were a whole lot of people who put in a whole bunch more. He was watching their giving, how much they were giving, and then, and this corresponds directly to the story of Cain and Abel, he was drawing conclusions about it, which as son of God is his prerogative to do. You and I are not the son of God. We don't have that prerogative. Jesus does. 
He can draw conclusions about it, and that's what he was doing. And, and what he concluded here in, in these four verses affirms what we saw in ingredient number one. The amount does, in fact, matter. What I give and how I give matters greatly to Jesus, not relative to the person to my left or my right or in front of me or behind me, but compared to what God has entrusted to me. It matters. And Jesus is paying attention. And the bottom line here, what Jesus is trying to convey to his disciples, I really believe, is that he saw this woman's giving as an act of worship. So how do you know that? Because apparently she was operating under the conviction that I can give all I have because God is all I need. You say, well, that's an awfully flippant way to live. No, I think that was by faith. We can do that flippantly. We can do it by faith. Jesus commended her, tells me, it's by faith, because without faith, it's what? It's impossible to please God. She had concluded in her own heart, I can give God all I have because God is ultimately all that I need. Call that whatever you want. I call it worship. Saying, God, you're worth all I have, and you are all that I need. So you sure giving is an act of worship? Absolutely. Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Jesus said that. It's true. We see it as an act of worship. Again, not a have to, but a want to and a get to. And finally, and I know we're short on time, but there's one more ingredient I want you to see here. And we're going to look at it quickly. And it is, I'm just going to say before I tell you what this final ingredient is, that it is so painfully obvious I'm almost embarrassed to say it. At the same time, it is so vitally important that this sermon will be a failure if I don't. This sermon might be a failure anyway, but if I don't do this, it will be. And it's this, ingredient number five, the final ingredient of an acceptable gift that makes a gift to God acceptable is that I actually do it. <laughs> that I actually do it. That I give something as a believer to the Lord. If you want to turn there quickly, otherwise listen closely. 1 John 3, 1 John 3, 16 through 18. The Apostle John says this, we know love this way. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives as a result for the brethren, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. For, he says, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, John was an old man here, and this is the affectionate reference he had to fellow believers. Little children, this is the principle. Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Bottom line, biblical bottom line, talk is cheap. Hmm. Meant to's mean nothing. Well, Lord, I meant to, and I, I wanted to, and I thought about it, and we, we, we just, okay. <laughs> Let us not love simply with word and with tongue, but in deed and in truth, that's God's way of saying, take what you say and you sing about me and put it into action. And I would submit to you that even Cain, in his wicked condition, wicked as it seems to be to us, understood this. He understood at least one thing. His heart may have been wrong, but he knew what we talked about at the beginning of this series. You can't do nothing. Doing nothing isn't an option. He gave with the wrong motive, but even he understood, this is what God's calling me to do. What am I saying? I'm saying acceptable giving can only happen if and when I actually do it. Once I decide I'm going to give. 
As we close this morning, I want to ask you a question. Now, I realize we have laid, I have laid, I'll take responsibility for it, a lot of heavy stuff before you this morning. Stuff that may sit well, stuff that may not. And as always, my prayer is that you hear what God wants you to hear, and what came from me, you will forget. So let me just say that, but then let me ask you a question. And this is where we'll close. Assuming that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you do or you have in the past given to the Lord. Offerings, buildings, missionaries, what I don't care, just you've done it. Do you see when you give, when you hand over the cash, when you write the check, the 12 of us left in the world who still do that, even when you do it online, do you see your giving to God and what he's doing as an opportunity to connect your heart with his? Do you see it that way? As this is, in fact, an act of worship. It's an opportunity for God and I to connect. That is to say, when you're writing the check or when you're walking to the box or if you're somewhere where the plate is being passed, do you take that moment to contemplate and remember, who am I really giving this to? I'm not giving it to Maranatha. I'm giving it to God. And, and the condition of your heart in doing so I would challenge you to try it. God's sort of taught me, and I don't know where the idea came from over the last couple of years, but that even in my own life, to, uh, that, that, that when I sit down, I, when I write out a check or when I record our, we have some, some gifts that go out to missionaries, that sort of thing, whatever, that doesn't matter so much. But God's been teaching me to use that time, quick and, and sort of clinical as it often is, just as an opportunity to pause and go, thank you, God, for giving me something to give back. Thank you, first of all, for another paycheck, another week's needs, couple of weeks' needs met. And then I pray for those that I write those checks or send that money off to, that, that God will take it, small as it seems, and multiply it and give it eternal significance. Do you do that? Or do you just write it, send it, and move on? I, I would challenge you to try it, to see giving as an opportunity to connect with the Lord because when we understand that we do it according to our ability and with an open hand and a joyful heart and an act of worship, here's the key, here's the bottom line, and here's what we'll close with. You get, I get the opportunity, you know what, to delight the heart of God, to do exactly what Abel did, to delight God's heart. And that's why the big idea of the message this morning is this, is that once again, it's not about the building, it's not even really ultimately about money. It's about delighting the heart of God. It's the fact that realizing I can do something small and sinful as I am that gives almighty God pleasure and glory. Just like he did with Abel. Father, I pray that you take all of this stuff, challenging as it may be, perhaps in some cases confusing, Father, maybe sometimes even in my own heart, irritating as it may be. Father, that, that old notion that, oh, churches, all they ever talk about is money and all they want is money. Father, I pray that you'd s sweep all the misunderstanding away. Father, I pray you take anything that I've said this morning on this very sensitive subject that's out of line with your word, cause it to be forgotten, and, and ultimately I'd ask forgiven. But Father, let us take the things of truth from your word this morning and concentrate on them with our whole mind and heart. Father, it's not about the building, and we're not trying to pry people apart from their money. May that be clearly understood. But Father, we do want to see what your word talks so much about, what Jesus himself talked about so often, that, that there's a way to connect with you through the tangible act of giving, through our offerings and our tithes and our sacrifices to you that delights the heart of Almighty God.
And ultimately, Father, that's why we've been saved, to bring joy and glory and pleasure to you. So, Father, do take the things of truth spoken this morning, seal them to our hearts, take the things that are error or unnecessary, cause them to be forgotten, so that we may leave singing praise of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.